welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. God and Culture, as read by the author, Jason Cherry. Since bad ideas drive out good ideas, it's helpful to occasionally take stock of some ideas that have pushed their way into the driver's seat. Since culture is changing rapidly in a secular direction, the question of how the church should relate to the culture is back in discussion. One view is the approach of silence. Only talk about the cross and ignore the BLM riots dudes swimming in the girls' race, and governments canceling church services in the name of COVID. The silent approach is that since God is the vision, giving attention to cultural issues distracts from the vision. The problem is that while God is the vision, culture is the context. The church may not be interested in cultural issues, but cultural issues are interested in the church. In the broadest sense, Culture is the totality of human activity. Defined more practically, culture is the set of values and the web of beliefs that make up the collective viewpoint that influences behavior. Culture collectively transfers inherited meanings, morality, and attitudes. It defines what is normal. It tells people what songs should be on their Spotify list if they want to be cool, what significance being gay or straight has, and how to measure the meaning of a college degree. In the United States, culture trains individualistic conformity to the communal consensus, a consensus marked by fetidity rather than faithfulness. To say that the church should be interested in cultural engagement is to say that some of the church's attention should be occupied by understanding the culture, resisting its sinful influences, and cultivating Christian society. There are cultural winds and waves that Christians must be aware of according to Ephesians 4.14. There are rulers, authorities, and cosmic forces that Christians must wrestle against, according to Ephesians 6.12. There is a course of this world that follows the prince of the power of the air that Christians must not walk in, according to Ephesians 2.2. There are philosophies of empty deceit that ought not to take Christians captive, according to Colossians 2.8. There are women of the world Christians must not marry, lest they are influenced by their culture and turn from God, according to Judges 3.6 and 1 Kings 11.3-8. There is a wisdom of the age, and those who live according to it are doomed to pass away, according to 1 Corinthians 2.6. Too many voices in the church today cry that we ought to keep silent about the myriad of controversial issues, because, they argue... If we address them, we will lose our opportunity to present the gospel. The silent treatment leaves the church unaware of the surrounding culture and makes little attempt to take stock of the world in which the word is preached. But this is surely wrong. As Martin Luther made plain in his day, to fight unbelief at any point other than where the battle is being fought in one's day is to lose the battle. Francis Schaeffer said something similar when he said, the Christian must resist the spirit of the world in the form it takes in his own generation. 
It is our task to bring God's truth to bear at the very places where our culture is in rebellion. In so doing, Christians expose the darkness of secular culture with the light of God's truth. The issue of whether or not Christians should engage the culture is a two-level discussion. First, the abstract level, then the practical level. One may abstractly argue against cultural engagement, but then reverse course when the practical example is the Third Reich. So if the discussion intends to be a fruitful one, it must be more than just an abstract view of the object. It's not simply a yay or nay question that stands stripped of every relation. It's not merely an academic discussion. It's an issue that relates to human actions and human concerns in the present moment. Therefore, since circumstances give reality to the principles of cultural engagement, we cannot sit on top of naked theological abstractions, as lofty as they sound. For example, one might race to the gospel-centered high horse and announce nothing except Jesus Christ in Him crucified. Now, abstractly speaking, this is good, and not just good, it's biblical, if getting the quotation correct is the chief concern. But, should we join the excellent fellow and hop on the high horse without inquiring what the nature and effect of Christ crucified was? Should we join any and everything labeled gospel-centered before we are informed of how it combines with the collection of all the scriptures? Are we to congratulate the gospel-centered approach that pretends to not see madmen running outside the constraints of reality? What if the effect of the gospel-centered talk is that people everywhere do what they please? What if gospel-centered means to create crisis conversions and let society take care of itself? Is it gospel-centered to stand aloof from the fact that Christ's death and resurrection set the entire creation free from its bondage to corruption? Edom was judged because on the day the enemy entered Judah's gates, they stood aloof, according to Obadiah 1.11. The Edomites began with silence, passively observing enemies looting. Then they gloated over Judah's problems in Obadiah 1.12. Then they attacked the helpless refugees from Judah in Obadiah 1.14. Notice how cooperation with the enemy starts. It starts with aloofness in silence. There is a certain folly and falsity to think one can live in a place without being shaped by it. When a family settles down in a home, they become part of the home. Likewise, when they live in a culture, they become part of that culture, unless there is fierce resistance. Modern American culture is in bondage to corruption. The gods of our culture utter nonsense, see lies, tell false dreams, and give empty consolation. See Zechariah 10.2. The transgressions of the culture are well documented. Abortion, government corruption, more children born out of wedlock than in it, identity politics, and the celebration of homosexuality. The church, too, is in a particular type of cultural bondage. Spiritually, the United States has become a place where salvation is therapy, Happiness is tied to the latest technique, everyone is entitled to the latest gadget, and God is found in the self. Silence is unacceptable because conforming to the world is fundamentally a passive position, while conforming to Christ is an active one. In other words, those who do nothing default to the cultural's clutches. 
Cultural aloofness leads to slow conformity. The demands of Christ's teaching pull in one direction, while the habits of culture pull in the opposite direction. This problem cannot be solved with detachment or disengagement. We must, as Flannery O'Connor said, push back against the age as hard as it pushes against you. The gospel, according to Acts 17.30, commands all people everywhere to repent. It is those who grasp the implications of repentance in their cultural context that grow into maturity. If you don't know scripture and culture, how will you know when you've exchanged the sensibilities of one for the other? How will moral character form? How will Christian wisdom result? And so, why should Christians engage with the culture? We must engage because the impersonal voice of culture comes through a media consensus that eventually reaches even the most sheltered family. We must engage because one's experience in the culture creates in them a framework for thinking and a paradigm of wanting that takes them into a very different place from the thinking and wanting Scripture prescribes. We must engage because culture fills you and empties you. What is it filling you with, and what is it emptying you of? Whatever fills you and empties you shapes not only the way you see things, but what you see in the first place. When a culture is overwhelmingly secular, the consequence is a befogged mind, unable to see reality. American secular culture has rulers and authorities. They are the ranks of evil beings arrayed against God, God's Christ, God's Word, God's Law, God's Will, and God's Truth. They are the mysterious fingers of culture that gather unguarded souls into captivity. Three things must happen for sinners' captivity to be broken, according to Colossians 2, 13-15. First, their trespasses must be forgiven. Second, their record of debt must be canceled. And third, the rulers and authorities must be disarmed. The cross turns captivity into triumph, not by waving a magic wand, but by disabling the instruments through which evil is practiced. The cross disarmed the instruments of evil. The debt is paid. The broken relationship is reconciled. God's wrath is put away, and Satan's hold is broken. Through the cross, the enemy's grip is loosened and evil is crippled. The justified and reconciled people of God now take God's cistern and wash the four corners of the universe until it is free from all Satan's influence. If the goal of the world is Christian faith, then Christianity should be taking the culture captive. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.